Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a program about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown, and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers, and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms, and our Twitter handle is at Inside Books I or E, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is the writer Ed O'Loughlin. Born in Canada, he moved to Kildare when he was six years old and he now lives in Dublin. He studied English at Trinity College in Dublin and then worked as a reporter with some Irish newspapers, including the Irish Times. He later reported from Africa for a range of newspapers, including the Sydney Morning Herald and the Independent of London. He was also Middle East correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age of Melbourne. His first novel, Not Untrue and Not Unkind, was long listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2009 and also shortlisted for the Kerry Group Irish Fiction Award. This was followed by Toploader and Minds of Winter and he's now published his fourth novel which is called This Eden. So Ed, I'm going to read that again. Long listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2009 with your debut novel. What was that like? It was a surprise for a start. <laughs> I didn't even know I was eligible to be entered. Um, uh, it was very exciting for about six weeks um, after they announced the long list and then before they announced the short list. Uh, so I had I had six good weeks uh, during which, of course, the book promptly sold out in most bookshops in Ireland. And by the time they got it back in again, I was no longer a potential uh, Booker Prize winner. I didn't make the short list, but uh, at least I could strut around a bit for a few weeks. Absolutely, but to be long-listed in the first place, and again, just for a debut, were your, were your publishers surprised, even if you were? Um, well, my publisher told me that uh, they were not surprised at all. They were only surprised they didn't win it. But never, <laughs> never dealt with publishers. You know that uh, flattery is one of the uh, currencies they pay you in, um, but they prefer it to euros. So uh, I, I think they probably were surprised that it made it onto the lungs, but they weren't going to say that to me. Well, isn't it great that they had such confidence in, in the product, as you say? And again, you know, people do say that winning prizes does impact on sales. And obviously, as you said, it did in your case. It did, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it would have sold an awful lot less, uh, a lot fewer copies um, if it hadn't been for that. But, uh, you know, who knows? And you were working as a reporter, as we mentioned earlier on, and we've had an awful lot of journalists on Inside Books who've actually turned into authors. So when did the moment arrive for you that you realised you wanted to write a book? That's a very hard question because it took me a very long time. I think even going back to when I was a kid, I probably wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think I would be. Um, It wasn't kind of an unformulated wish. Uh, I was very uh, bookish for a child and I read a lot, but uh, I always thought that writers were a different species and there was nobody in my family or, or where I grew up uh, who had any involvement with literature. It was a, a different thing. Um, I, I, I studied English at college, but even then uh, I just thought I was doing it because it was a kind of putting off making a choice about what I do with my life. But, mm-hmm. you know, now that I look back, clearly I was, uh, I, I, I've compared it to kind of, you know, being gay but not realising it. You know, I was not out to myself that I wanted to be a writer and uh, it wasn't until my early 30s that I actually decided, well, I'll give this a go. And, but the journalism though as well, I mean, you were you were obviously writing in the day job as a journalist. Yeah, but it's a very different kind of writing. It's completely different. Um, it's not really your work. You know, as we say in the trade, it's fish and chips because your, your, your finest prose 
will be hurried and rushed. It will be about things that will, will not matter in a week's time, most likely. And as they say in journalism, you know, tomorrow we're wrapping somebody else's fish and chips. That's what newspapers do. Um, uh, it, 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 I always dreaded um, deadlines. And of course, I worked daily newspapers, so I had lots of deadlines virtually every day. And um, and you get this terrible vertigo when you have a deadline coming up and you don't know if you're going to hit it or not. And you pretty much always do, but you're just filled with dread while you're writing that you're not going to make it. Um, and patience doesn't come into it. Whereas when you're writing your own um, projects, obviously, usually you don't have a deadline, um, a hard deadline, and uh, you can take your time about it and you can enjoy it. So I always loved having written in journalism. I loved having filed you know, that huge weight off your shoulders, but um, the actual writing process itself was just, you know, nightmarish. Whereas it's the other way around with uh, with literature. Well, I was just going to say then, do you find the same with writing a book that is it nightmarish writing it and then you look back and go, actually, that wasn't so bad? Um, well, I mean, it's a roller coaster, and a lot of people say the same thing, that you go through these great mood swings when you're writing, saying, you know, this is crap, you know, this is brilliant, and it's crap again. Um you have to just ride those out. But on the whole, the process, I find me personally, um, I really, really enjoy writing novels and, and um, personal in my own material. I, I enjoy it hugely. It's one of, the, one of the best things of my life. And uh, and um, I would do it for nothing. You know, I would do it as a hobby if I couldn't do it as a job. Don't be telling your publishers that. You <laughs> <They> know. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the debut as well, again, you you stuck very much with what you know. It was life in a newsroom, uh, which was your stock and trade at the time. So again, was that deliberate? Yeah, that was me um, deciding that I wanted to be a writer, not knowing how to write or really what to write. Um, I never took any writing classes. So I had to teach myself to write while I was doing it. And I just figured, well, I, I had had... Um, a lot of adventures and meet a lot of interesting places when I was an Africa correspondent. I thought, why don't I adapt, not the stories, because the story is completely fictional, but I, I can use those locations and those, you know, those, those background running stories that the journalists are covering. I can use those as incident and try and kind of um, just tap them together and make a novel. And that way, a lot of the heavy lifting and the research would be taken out of it. I wouldn't have to do that. Um, so I did that, but looking back at it now, it's probably not a very personal book, even though it's about someone who was like me in places I've been. It was just me trying to write any kind of novel I could think of uh, in desperation. And um, I don't really think back much about that book at all now, uh, even though in some ways it was one of the most successful. And it, how long did it take to write it, actually? It took years to write it because I was writing it while, after I left Africa, um, I was... Uh, asked if I'd go to the Middle East um, for the Australian papers I worked for. I was back in Ireland for almost a year, and then they called me up out of the blue and offered me this job, which is a very good job. And even though I thought I was finished with uh, full-time news reporting, it's a job I couldn't turn down. I always wanted to go to the Middle East. So I took that job, but it's a very, very fraught um, news environment, as you can imagine. And um, I was their only person in the region, so you're always ready to pick up your bag and head out the door and you don't know what hours you're going to have and you could be away for three or four weeks at a time on the road. And these are all the things that you don't need as a, as, as a, as a kind of fiction writer or long-form non-fiction writer. You need to be able to build up momentum, block off time, do things regularly. You need a schedule and I couldn't do it. So it took me years to write that first novel because of those constraints and also because I didn't know how to write a novel. I was teaching myself 
as I went along. And in terms of getting published then, how did that happen? Um, well, the only person, I didn't know anybody, I didn't have any contacts in the book trade. Um, and despite what you might think, there's obviously a very big overload, overlap between um, arts journalism and publishing and, and various you know, artistic worlds, cinema and so on. There isn't between news reporting and, uh, and publishing. There's very little. Um, I wouldn't admit known anybody in those worlds. The one person who I did know was Patricia Devey at uh, Penguin Ireland, who had been, uh, we both started out as reporters together on the Dublin Tribune um, before we went different places, and she went into publishing. She didn't actually handle literary fiction at Penguin, but she, she said I should send it into them. Uh, because Brendan Barrington, who is still their, their their main guy for literary fiction and for long-form non-fiction, he's also edits and produces the Dublin Review. He's a real force of nature in the Irish book world. Uh, she said he would probably take a look at it, and she said, and I, you know, at that point, I probably shouldn't reveal this, but Brendan actually is one of the few, or was one of the few publishers who reads his slush pile. Right. A lot of publishers won't even look at, uh, at submissions that come in unless they have an introduction. But Brendan, uh, Brendan would do that. So uh, he he looked at it, he liked it. He didn't make me an offer. He kind of, uh, but it, Brendan likes to edit um, hands on, which again is rare these days. It's very useful, particularly for your first book. Uh, but he kind of worked with me for over a year in it before he made an offer. Basically, he he got it into a shape which he liked better, um, and uh, he did a lot of. Uh, Good work and make good suggestions, and uh, and then it was going to be published, um, which you know, was a very nice day when I got that letter. And then long listed, obviously, as we said, and then moving on then to the second book, the difficult second album, or in some cases, some of the inside uh, books interviewees that we've had have said the second book has been fine. It's the third book they've had an issue with. Um, but did you feel any extra pressure as a result of being long listed for the Man Booker? Uh, not really. If, I, if I'm honest, I probably felt entitlement, which was very misplaced. I thought, well, that book went mm. very well. I'm sure my next one will do even better. Um, Top Loader, which is my second novel, was based on my experiences in the Middle East. And it, it, it was very personal because it was very angry. Um, it's really, although I don't, it's, it's about the Gaza Strip, um, which I strip out the names and the places uh, or translate them into English, from Arabic and Hebrew. Um, it, it was very much about uh, the situation then, which hasn't changed really because it's just got worse, uh, although I kind of predicted that in, in Top Loader. But I had a lot of anger in me from um, five and a half years covering the Israel-Palestinian conflict, and that went into Top Loader. Uh, and I think that I probably misjudged uh, the appetite of the book buying public, particularly in Ireland, for a, a black uh, comic satire on the war against terror. I mean, it, 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 I say it, it, it was based on Gaza, but it could, could be applied to a lot of places. The way the world was and is turning, and the way people are marginalised and you know turned into terrorists because they live in a particular city in Syria or Libya or Gaza. Um, but uh, I, had a, I really enjoyed writing it, a top loader, and I'm still very proud of it. But uh, if I thought it was going to get wafted into the book or long list or any other uh, prize list, I was very much mistaken. And were you happy with how it did in the end? Uh, no, because uh, I thought I'd written a good book. I thought it was entertaining as well. And uh, I would have hoped it would have made more impression. Um, I still meet people who've actually read it who talk about how much they liked it. But uh, 
there aren't enough of them, unfortunately. So you had two quite interesting and quite different experiences then with the first and the second book. So, uh, you know, how did you, I suppose, process that and bring it to what you're doing today, the third book and obviously the the fourth, which is out now? Uh, The third book is a completely different book again. um, It it was um, probably my most personal book to date, although you wouldn't think it reading it because um, it's about... uh, Arctic and, and Antarctic explorers, uh, a small group of them through history. It's, it's partially set in the present day and partially set in various phases of the so-called heroic uh, phase of polar exploration. Um, and really what it was about was grief and loss. Um, but uh, I used kind of a child's fascination with, with the polar regions as, uh, as a way of writing my way into these themes. Um, the main characters, the main historical characters, are uh, explorers who, who were lost, who disappeared, but whose deaths were never witnessed. Um, and uh, I was trying to write a kind of series of mirages. Uh, there is an interlocking story that holds them together, which is a true story, which is about how a, a naval chronometer that was issued to one of Franklin's ships um, that was sent into the uh, Northwest Passage in the mid-1845 um, they issued chronometers to these ships for navigation, and um, the ships were lost and became one of the famous course celebres of uh, the 19th century and are still being talked about today. We had that very successful uh, TV series, The Terror, which I was talking mm-hmm. about recently, is, is among several fictions, including mine, based on, on that story. But one of these chronometers, ships were lost completely, all hands, no, hardly any sight of sound of them for over 100 years. And then one of these chronometers turned up at an auction in the south of England. And the great mystery then was how did this thing get back in working order? Uh, it had been disguised as a different kind of clock, as somebody who knew what it was. How did this happen? So I used this true, this true story uh, to kind of uh, string together these different narratives. Um, so again, there are no journalists in it and no wars. Uh, and I haven't been to, I wasn't on the Franklin expedition myself. I wasn't with uh, Captain Scott and Tom Queen in the Antarctic, but uh, uh, in a way, because I was making stuff completely off the top of my head, it actually feels more personal than when I'm using real events that I've witnessed. And then your latest book, This Eden, then is totally different. Again, it's a dystopian tech thriller. And I suppose what interests me is that all your books do seem they're really ambitious, I suppose, in terms of what they're trying to achieve. And they, they are just all so different. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have to, I'm a slow writer and I have to live with these things for, you know, a year, two years, five years. Um, and, I, and I get bored easily and I, I don't want to write the same book twice, which is probably a mistake uh, in terms of having a career as a writer because people like to kind of, people are scared of what they don't know. Um, but for me, uh, you know, as a writer, I guess as an artist, it's just much more interesting to, to use different tools and, and do different things. Now that you're focusing on writing full time, is it? Are you writing quicker then? Are the books coming along quicker? Uh, they have been lately. Uh, uh, this even took really a year to write. Um, I mean, it was written by by the end of 2019. It's only coming out now because that's how scheduling works in publishing. They have to kind of put things into slots, like planes coming from airports, and, and mine had to fall into spring 2021. Um, but, I mean, I wrote another book, kind of a short memoir, uh, in the period last year while I was doing the edits on this evening because I was, I'm always sitting at home. Lockdown doesn't affect that, but I just had more time on my hands because there was less freelance work to do. I also still do some freelance news reporting. 
so that kind of fell away and uh uh you know the more time i have at home um the kids are grown up now i was i was a stay-at-home father uh they're now in their early teens but for years i was the person who had to kind of occupy them a lot of the time so that didn't give me much time but now i do have um more time and more energy. I've, I've been a lot more productive lately. You've mentioned as well previously that you're sort of, you, you have a slightly ambivalent relationship with plotting books. But obviously with this Eden as well, you know, as well as dealing with sort of what's going on in, in the world of technology, it's also a thriller. So did you find with this one you had to maybe focus more on plot than previously? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it actually wasn't that hard to plot. Top Loader was very intricately plotted and I used kind of final draft software for that because that allows you to kind of map things out um, visually um, I, I, and I thought I might need it again for this evening because I knew this evening would have a lot of plot in it but because this evening is basically a chase thriller uh, as, as a central plot um, that just meant I, I could do it linear uh, so although a lot of stuff um, does pay off later on in the book and, and loops back and there are there are a lot of interconnections um, I didn't have to bang my head against the wall too hard to write it. Um, a lot of stuff fell into place just from following the, well, they're here, where do they go next and how do they get there? You know, just solving those problems helped a lot with the plotting. And again, the pacing though as well. I mean, you're going from California to New York to Uganda, Jerusalem, Gaza, Alexandria, Paris, and eventually back to, to Ireland. You know, it's like a, it's a globe trotting trip and obviously all areas that you're well familiar with from your reporting days. Yeah, well, again, I didn't want, I, I did so much research for Minds of Winter I went down rabbit holes, you wouldn't believe. I mean, mm. I, I, I know a lot about um, magnetic anomaly detection of submarines mm-hmm. in World War II, which did not make it into Minds of Winter, but uh, all kinds of uh, crazy stuff. I have a whole shelves of books, um, but with, I, I didn't want to do that again. But I loved it. Enjoy, I really enjoyed it, the research, but I don't want to do it again uh, in a hurry. Um, so I just used locations that I, I, I knew of um, as a way of uh, cutting corners um, and uh, and uh, I think hopefully it worked out. So what are you working on at the moment? Um, I have a couple of projects in mind, both novels. Uh, one, which, which kind of keeps popping into the back of my mind. I'm trying to write another novel, which has got nothing nothing to do with, again, nothing to do with this. It's a very Irish novel, uh, which would be set in Scaries, so I'm going to say 30 years ago, and in which nothing much happens. Right. Uh, unlike these other ones. I'm hoping it'll be quite gentle. Uh, and then, um, but I have a crime novel in mind as well that's set in Dublin. Oh, um, really? It keeps on intruding in my thoughts. We're a big uh, crime fans here at Inside Books. So are you going to, going to tell us any more about that now? Uh, well, the central caper was going to be about property. But unfortunately, <laughs> I suspect that by the time I sit down to writing it or it comes out that the kind of the crazy planning, I won't say corruption, but legal corruption, in other words, stuff that shouldn't be doable, but is. Uh, there's so much anger now that those things might have been solved. Forgive me for saying that, they won't have been, obviously, but you know, I'm sure we still have co-living units in every corner. But uh, I might have to re- rebuild the engine between now and then, but uh, the property will be, uh, will be a function of it, yeah. This Eden as well, you know, it also felt very cinematic to me uh, reading it. So is there has there been any talk around, you know, getting that book or any of your books to screen? Uh, there was some interest in Top Loader, which is uh, which is very, very cinematic. And it's, it's, it's all told through people saying things, people doing things, you know, what, what, you know, it's written in scenes. 
without a lot of inferior monologue or flashbacks or you know backstory. Um, the uh, there's, there's there's been some interest as well in this Eden. Um, there was some interest even before it came out. So uh, some quite strong interest. But you know you, you hear these things and then somebody somewhere has to actually spend money to, 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 to even start the process. So that hasn't happened yet. And I'd be very interested to see if it does. Watch this space. The other thing that you've you've mentioned as well is that the, you know, the novel this Eden, it's in the acknowledgements of the book, was written with the help of bursaries from the Arts Council of Ireland and the Canada Council for the Arts. So I suppose yeah. just interested in your view on how important these initiatives are for writers. Well, they're hugely important for me. Uh, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I, I'm very lucky in that I'm eligible for bursaries from um, from both Canada and from Ireland. I was born in Canada, but uh, I'm an Irish citizen. I grew up here, obviously, as you can hear from my accent. And, um, so sometimes I'm looking at, like, sometimes I get one, a grant from one, sometimes I get a grant from the other. With this one, I got a grant from both, which is great. Um, sometimes you get no grant at all, obviously. Uh, but uh, it just makes a huge difference that you can, you know, spend several months without having to worry about um, your overdraft maxing out. Um, I'm very bad at applying for funding and I, I don't really do any of the things uh, that writers do to make money. Like uh, I don't teach writing because I don't know how. Uh, I've never studied it and I don't um, get asked to do a lot of other stuff. So uh, I don't know what foundations give money. I've never been good at finding that out. So if I don't get a grant from the Arts Council, I don't get a grant. So to, to me, it's very, very valuable. The connection as well, you know, as you mentioned there between Canada and Ireland, I mean, obviously uh, you're appealing, you know, given your history, uh, probably appealing to audiences in both countries. So is that good for sales? Uh, well, my last book, Minds of Winter, did very well in Canada. Um, I mean, it's it's not entirely set there, but quite a bit of it is set in Ireland. Uh, but um, because it, it deals with, with, with themes of the Franklin Expedition, which is basically almost like Canada's Modern Canada's founding myth, um, with the Canadian Arctic, uh, and it was a finalist for the Giller Prize, which is Canada's biggest book prize, and which has quite a lot of resonance around it. Um, uh, it did very well there; it was a bestseller, um, but uh, it, it didn't get as much of a readership here. Um, maybe Irish people aren't as interested in in, in, the, in those. Uh, well, I won't say themes because the themes weren't about polar exploration, but those those settings and those milieu. And your view, I suppose, on, on Irish writing at the moment. We have a, a plethora of, of writers across a huge amount of genres. So how do you see it at the minute? I don't necessarily read all of it. Um, uh, you know, in the last year I read, um, I, I, I found lately I think the women are doing rather better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem to be. Um, and I don't just mean in sales, I mean in quality. Um it's a bit of a slump in the male front, which, you know, obviously I hope to, you know. Fix uh, that. You know, you know, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, 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 I find Irish writing tends to come in waves with, with, with similar kinds of books coming out um, in large numbers, which may be um, because publishers, particularly publishers in the UK where a lot of us are published, uh, don't really understand Ireland and they just look for the last thing that was successful and try and replicate it. Um, uh, and sometimes they mispackage things. I mean, and I, I read last year, I got around to reading Normal People last year, which I loved. And I also read uh, Isha Dolan's book, which I loved. Um, 
I thought packaging Nisha Dolan as Sadie was possibly good for sales, but I think she's a very different writer. Um, and um, she's very humorous for a start. Um, but, you know, that's 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 what they do. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had lunch, a coffee every day with Brendan Cronin, who's a bookseller in uh, Hodges, and he, he compared it to the early... The early uh, the 80s in, in Ireland when U2 had suddenly made it big mm-hmm. and all the record companies came over uh, looking for the next U2 and they were sending up Cactus World News, if anybody remembers them, and they were going to be the next U2. And uh, so they, they wanted that kind of soft post-punk sound and a lot of a lot of better Irish bands like Our House and Something Happens didn't get the attention they needed because they weren't what people abroad thought the Irish thing should be. Um, yeah, and 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 uh, I mean, I can't tend to be a a, a funding and expert on it because I don't read everything that comes out. But uh, um, I think I'd like to see some more quirky stuff, um, uh, stuff that I wasn't expecting. That would be nice. Well, there you go. Once you finish the book about scaries and the crime novel, that's that's exactly where you can go next, Ed. One of the scariest book is to write the most typical Irish novel I can think of. So. <laughs> No problem. Well, Ed O'Loughlin, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find this Eden online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I-O-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. I'm Brita Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production. 